The artful minimalism of the speech gave it simplicity, purity, and charm. Search where you will, from anthologies to YouTube, and you won't find a better commencement address. Others may have been more important, such as George Marshall's at Harvard in 1947 announcing a plan to rebuild Europe, but none has had more grace. A Lion at Fifty For his thirtieth and fortieth birthdays, Jobs had celebrated with the stars of Silicon Valley and other assorted celebrities, but when he turned fifty in 2005, after coming back from his cancer surgery, the surprise party that his wife arranged featured mainly his closest friends and professional colleagues. It was at the comfortable San Francisco home of some friends, and the great chef, Alice Waters, prepared salmon from Scotland, along with couscous and a variety of garden-raised vegetables. It was beautifully warm and intimate, with everyone and the kids all able to sit in one room, Waters recalled. The entertainment was comedy improvisation done by the cast of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Jobs's close friend Mike Slade was there, along with colleagues from Apple and Pixar, including Lassiter, Cook, Schiller, Clow, Rubenstein, and Tavanian. Cook had done a good job running the company during Jobs's absence. He kept Apple's temperamental actors performing well, and he avoided stepping into the limelight. Jobs liked strong personalities up to a point, but he had never truly empowered a deputy or shared the stage. It was hard to be his understudy. You were damned if you shone, and damned if you didn't. Cook had managed to navigate those shoals. He was calm and decisive when in command, but he didn't seek any notice or acclaim for himself. Some people resent the fact that Steve gets credit for everything, but I've never given a rat's ass about that, said Cook. Frankly speaking, I'd prefer my name never be in the paper. When Jobs returned from his medical leave, Cook resumed his role as the person who kept the moving parts at Apple tightly meshed and remained unfazed by Jobs' tantrums. What I learned about Steve was that people mistook some of his comments as ranting or negativism, but it was really just the way he showed passion. So that's how I processed it, and I never took issues personally. In many ways, he was Jobs' mirror image, unflappable, steady in his moods, and, as the thesaurus in the next would have noted, saturnine rather than mercurial. I'm a good negotiator, but he's probably better than me because he's a cool customer, Jobs later said. After adding a bit more praise, he quietly added a reservation, one that was serious but rarely spoken. But Tim's not a product person, per se. In the fall of 2005, after returning from his medical leave, Jobs tapped Cook to become Apple's chief operating officer. They were flying together to Japan. Jobs didn't really ask Cook. He simply turned to him and said, I've decided to make you COO. Around that time, Jobs' old friends John Rubenstein and Avi Tavanian, 
the hardware and software lieutenants who had been recruited during the 1997 restoration, decided to leave. In Tavanian's case, he had made a lot of money and was ready to quit working. Avi is a brilliant guy and a nice guy, much more grounded than Ruby, and doesn't carry the big ego, said Jobs. It was a huge loss for us when Avi left. He's a -a one-of-a-kind person, a genius. Rubenstein's case was a little more contentious. He was upset by Cook's ascendancy and frazzled after working for nine years under Jobs. Their shouting matches became more frequent. There was also a substantive issue. Rubenstein was repeatedly clashing with Johnny Ive, who used to work for him and now reported directly to Jobs. Ive was always pushing the envelope with designs that dazzled but were difficult to engineer. It was Rubenstein's job to get the hardware built in a practical way, so he often balked. He was by nature cautious. In the end, Ruby's from HP, said Jobs, and he never delved deep. He wasn't aggressive. There was, for example, the case of the screws that held the handles on the Power Mac G4. I've decided that they should have a certain polish and shape, but Rubenstein thought that would be astronomically costly and delay the project for weeks, so he vetoed the idea. His job was to deliver products, which meant making trade-offs. I viewed that approach as inimical to innovation, so he would go both above him to jobs and also around him to the mid-level engineers. Ruby would say, you can't do this, it will delay, and I would say, I think we can, I've recalled, and I would know because I had worked behind his back with the product teams. In this and other cases, jobs came down on Ives' side. At times, Ive and Rubenstein got into arguments that almost led to blows. Finally, Ive told Jobs, it's him or me. Jobs chose Ive. By that point, Rubenstein was ready to leave. He and his wife had bought property in Mexico, and he wanted time off to build a home there. He eventually went to work for Palm, which was trying to match Apple's iPhone. Jobs was so furious that Palm was hiring some of his former employees that he complained to Bono, who was a co-founder of a private equity group led by the former Apple CFO Fred Anderson that had bought a controlling stake in Palm. Bono sent Jobs a note back saying, You should chill out about this. This is like the Beatles ringing up because Herman and the Hermits have taken one of their road crew. Jobs later admitted that he had overreacted. The fact that they completely failed salves that wound, he said. Jobs was able to build a new management team that was less contentious and a bit more subdued. Its main players, in addition to Cook and Ive, were Scott Forstall running iPhone software, Phil Schiller in charge of marketing, Bob Mansfield doing Mac hardware, Eddie Q handling internet services, and Peter Oppenheimer as the chief financial officer. Even though there was a surface sameness to his top team, all were middle-aged white males, there was a range of styles. Ive was emotional and expressive. Cook was as cool as steel. 
They all knew they were expected to be deferential to Jobs, while also pushing back on his ideas and being willing to argue. A tricky balance to maintain, but each did it well. I realized very early that if you didn't voice your opinion, he would mow you down, said Cook. He takes contrary positions to create more discussion, because it may lead to a better result. So if you don't feel comfortable disagreeing, then you'll never survive. The key venue for freewheeling discourse was the Monday morning executive team gathering, which started at nine and went for three or four hours. The focus was always on the future. What should each product do next? What new things should be developed? Jobs used the meeting to enforce a sense of shared mission at Apple. This served to centralize control, which made the company seem as tightly integrated as a good Apple product, and prevented the struggles between divisions that plagued decentralized companies. Jobs also used the meetings to enforce focus. At Robert Friedland's farm, his job had been to prune the apple trees so that they would stay strong and that became a metaphor for his pruning at Apple. Instead of encouraging each group to let product lines proliferate based on marketing considerations or permitting a thousand ideas to bloom, Jobs insisted that Apple focus on just two or three priorities at a time. There is no one better at turning off the noise that is going on around him, Cook said. That allows him to focus on a few things and say no to many things. Few people are really good at that. In order to institutionalize the lessons that he and his team were learning, Jobs started an in-house center called Apple University. He hired Joel Podolny, who was dean of the Yale School of Management, to compile a series of case studies analyzing important decisions the company had made including the switch to the Intel microprocessor and the decision to open the Apple stores. Top executives spent time teaching the cases to new employees so that the Apple style of decision-making would be embedded in the culture. In ancient Rome, when a victorious general paraded through the streets, legend has it that he was sometimes trailed by a servant whose job it was to repeat to him, Memento Mori, remember, you will die. A reminder of mortality would help the hero keep things in perspective, instill some humility. Jobs's Memento Mori had been delivered by his doctors, but it did not instill humility. Instead, he roared back after his recovery with even more passion. The illness reminded him that he had nothing to lose, so he should forge ahead full speed. He came back on a mission, said Cook. Even though he was now running a large company, he kept making bold moves that I don't think anybody else would have done. For a while, there was some evidence, or at least hope, that he had tempered his personal style, that facing cancer and turning fifty, had caused him to be a bit less brutish when he was upset. Right after he came back from his operation, he didn't do the humiliation bit as much, Tavanian recalled. If he was displeased, he might scream and get hopping mad and use expletives, 
but he wouldn't do it in a way that would totally destroy the person he was talking to. It was just his way to get the person to do a better job. Tavanian reflected for a moment as he said this, then added a caveat. Unless he thought someone was really bad and had to go, which happened every once in a while. Eventually, however, the rough edges returned. Because most of his colleagues were used to it by then and had learned to cope, what upset them most was when his ire turned on strangers. Once we went to a Whole Foods market to get a smoothie, I've recalled, and this older woman was making it, and he really got on her about how she was doing it. Then later, he sympathized. She's an older woman and doesn't want to be doing this job. He didn't connect the two. He was being a purist in both cases. On a trip to London with Jobs, I've had the thankless task of choosing the hotel. He picked the Hempel, a tranquil five-star boutique hotel with a sophisticated minimalism that he thought Jobs would love. But as soon as they checked in, he braced himself, and sure enough, his phone rang a minute later. I hate my room, Jobs declared. It's a piece of shit. Let's go. So I've gathered his luggage and went to the front desk, where Jobs bluntly told the shocked clerk what he thought. I've realized that most people, himself among them, tend not to be direct when they feel something is shoddy because they want to be liked, which is actually a vain trait. That was an overly kind explanation. In any case, it was not a trait Jobs had. Because Ive was so instinctively nice, he puzzled over why Jobs, whom he deeply liked, behaved as he did. One evening in a San Francisco bar, he leaned forward with an earnest intensity and tried to analyze it. He's a very, very sensitive guy. That's one of the things that makes his antisocial behavior, his rudeness, so unconscionable. I can understand why people who are thick-skinned and unfeeling can be rude, but not sensitive people. I once asked him why he gets so mad about stuff. He said, but I don't stay mad. He has this very childish ability to get really worked up about something, and it doesn't stay with him at all. But there are other times, I think honestly, when he's very frustrated, and his way to achieve catharsis is to hurt somebody. And I think he feels he has a liberty and a license to do that. The normal rules of social engagement, he feels, don't apply to him. Because of how very sensitive he is, he knows exactly how to efficiently and effectively hurt someone, and he does do that. Every now and then a wise colleague would pull Jobs aside to try to get him to settle down. Lee Clow was a master. Steve, can I talk to you? He would quietly say when Jobs had belittled someone publicly. He would go into Jobs' office and explain how hard everyone was working. When you humiliate them, it's more debilitating than stimulating, he said in one such session. Jobs would apologize and say he understood, but then he would lapse again. It's simply who I am, he would say. One thing that did mellow was his attitude toward Bill Gates. 
Microsoft had kept its end of the bargain it made in 1997 when it agreed to continue developing great software for the Macintosh. Plus, it was becoming less relevant as a competitor, having failed thus far to replicate Apple's digital hub strategy. Gates and Jobs had very different approaches to products and innovation, but their rivalry had produced in each a surprising self-awareness. For their All Things Digital conference in May 2007, the Wall Street Journal columnist Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher worked to get them together for a joint interview. Mossberg first invited Jobs, who didn't go to many such conferences, and was surprised when he said he would do it if Gates would. On hearing that, Gates accepted as well. Mossberg wanted the evening joint appearance to be a cordial discussion, not a debate, but that seemed less likely when Jobs unleashed a swipe at Microsoft during a solo interview earlier that day. Asked about the fact that Apple's iTunes software for Windows computers was extremely popular, Jobs joked, It's like giving a glass of ice water to somebody in hell. So when it was time for Gates and Jobs to meet in the green room before their joint session that evening, Mossberg was worried. Gates got there first, with his aide, Larry Cohen, who had briefed him about Jobs' remark earlier that day. When Jobs ambled in a few minutes later, he grabbed a bottle of water from the ice bucket and sat down. After a moment or two of silence, Gates said, So, I guess I'm the representative from hell. He wasn't smiling. Jobs paused, gave him one of his impish grins, and handed him the ice water. Gates relaxed, and the tension dissipated. The result was a fascinating duet, in which each Wunderkind of the digital age spoke warily, and then warmly about the other. Most memorably, they gave candid answers when the technology strategist, Lise Beyer, who was in the audience, asked what each had learned from observing the other. Well, I'd give a lot to have Steve's taste, Gates answered. There was a bit of nervous laughter. Jobs had famously said ten years earlier that his problem with Microsoft was that it had absolutely no taste. But Gates insisted he was serious. Jobs was a natural in terms of intuitive taste. He recalled how he and Jobs used to sit together reviewing the software that Microsoft was making for the Macintosh. I'd see Steve make the decision based on a sense of people and product that, you know, is hard for me to explain. The way he does things is just different, and I think it's magical. And in that case, wow. Job stared at the floor. Later he told me that he was blown away by how honest and gracious Gates had just been. Jobs was equally honest, though not quite as gracious when his turn came. He described the great divide between the Apple theology of building end-to-end integrated products and Microsoft's openness to licensing its software to competing hardware makers. In the music market, The integrated approach, as manifested in his iTunes iPod package, was proving to be the better, he noted, but Microsoft's decoupled approach was faring better in the personal computer market. 
One question he raised in an offhand way was, which approach might work better for mobile phones? Then he went on to make an insightful point. This difference in design philosophy, he said, led him and Apple to be less good at collaborating with other companies. Because Waz and I started the company based on doing the whole banana, we weren't so good at partnering with people, he said. And I think if Apple could have had a little more of that in its DNA, it would have served it extremely well. Chapter 36, The iPhone Three Revolutionary Products in One An iPod That Makes Calls By 2005, iPod sales were skyrocketing. An astonishing 20 million were sold that year, quadruple the number of the year before. The product was becoming more important to the company's bottom line, accounting for 45% of the revenue that year, and it was also burnishing the hipness of the company's image in a way that drove sales of Macs. That is why Jobs was worried. He was always obsessing about what could mess us up, board member Art Levinson recalled. The conclusion he had come to, the device that can eat our lunch is the cell phone. As he explained to the board, the digital camera market was being decimated now that phones were equipped with cameras. The same could happen to the iPod if phone manufacturers started to build music players into them. Everyone carries a phone, so that could render the iPod unnecessary. His first strategy was to do something that he had admitted in front of Bill Gates was not in his DNA, to partner with another company. He began talking to Ed Zander, the new CEO of Motorola, about making a companion to Motorola's popular Razor, which was a cell phone and digital camera that would have an iPod built in. Thus was born the Rocker. It ended up having neither the enticing minimalism of an iPod nor the convenient slimness of a Razor. Ugly, difficult to load, and with an arbitrary hundred-song limit, it had all the hallmarks of a product that had been negotiated by a committee, which was counter to the way jobs like to work. Instead of hardware, software, and content all being controlled by one company, they were cobbled together by Motorola, Apple, and the wireless carrier Singular. You call this the phone of the future? Wired scoffed on its November 2005 cover. Jobs was furious. I'm sick of dealing with these stupid companies like Motorola, he told Tony Fidel and others at one of the iPod product review meetings. Let's do it ourselves. He had noticed something odd about the cell phones on the market. They all stank, just like portable music players used to. We would sit around talking about how much we hated our phones, he recalled. They were way too complicated. They had features nobody could figure out, including the address book. It was just Byzantine. George Riley, an outside lawyer for Apple, remembers sitting at meetings to go over legal issues, and Jobs would get bored, grab Riley's mobile phone, and start pointing out all the ways it was brain-dead. 
So Jobs and his team became excited about the prospect of building a phone that they would want to use. That's the best motivator of all, Jobs later said. Another motivator was the potential market. More than 825 million mobile phones were sold in 2005 to everyone from grammar schoolers to grandmothers. Since most were junky, there was room for a premium and hip product, just as there had been in the portable music player market. At first, he gave the project to the Apple group that was making the airport wireless base station on the theory that it was a wireless product. But he soon realized that it was basically a consumer device, like the iPod, so he reassigned it to Fidel and his teammates. Their initial approach was to modify the iPod. They tried to use the track wheel as a way for a user to scroll through phone options and, without a keyboard, try to enter numbers. It was not a natural fit. We were having a lot of problems using the wheel, especially in getting it to dial phone numbers, Fidel recalled. It was cumbersome. It was fine for scrolling through an address book, but horrible at inputting anything. The team kept trying to convince themselves that users would mainly be calling people who were already in their address book, but they knew that it wouldn't really work. At that time, there was a second project underway at Apple, a secret effort to build a tablet computer. In 2005, these narratives intersected, and the ideas for the tablet flowed into the planning for the phone. In other words, the idea for the iPad actually came before and helped to shape the birth of the iPhone. Multitouch One of the engineers who were developing a tablet PC at Microsoft was married to a friend of Laureen and Steve Jobs, and for his 50th birthday, he wanted to have a dinner party that included them, along with Bill and Melinda Gates. Jobs went a bit reluctantly. Steve was actually quite friendly to me at the dinner, Gates recalled, but he wasn't particularly friendly to the birthday guy. Gates was annoyed that the guy kept revealing information about the tablet PC he had developed for Microsoft. He's our employee, and he's revealing our intellectual property, Gates recounted. Jobs was also annoyed, and it had just the consequence that Gates feared. As Jobs recalled, This guy badgered me about how Microsoft was going to completely change the world with this tablet PC software and eliminate all notebook computers, and Apple ought to license his Microsoft software. But he was doing the device all wrong. It had a stylus. As soon as you have a stylus, you're dead. This dinner was like the tenth time he talked to me about it, and I was so sick of it that I came home and said, Fuck this. Let's show him what a tablet can really be. Jobs went into the office the next day, gathered his team, and said, I want to make a tablet, and it can't have a keyboard or a stylus. Users would be able to type by touching the screen with their fingers. That meant the screen needed to have a feature that became known as multi-touch, the ability to process multiple inputs at the same time. So could you guys come up with a multi-touch, touch-sensitive display for me? He asked. It took them about six months. 
but they came up with a crude but workable prototype. Johnny Ive had a different memory of how multi-touch was developed. He said his design team had already been working on a multi-touch input that was developed for the trackpads of Apple's MacBook Pro, and they were experimenting with ways to transfer that capability to a computer screen. They used a projector to show on a wall what it would look like. This is going to change everything, I've told his team. But he was careful not to show it to Jobs right away, especially since his people were working on it in their spare time, and he didn't want to quash their enthusiasm. Because Steve is so quick to give an opinion, I don't show him stuff in front of other people, I've recalled. He might say, this is shit, and snuff the idea. I feel that ideas are very fragile, so you have to be tender when they are in development. I realized that if he pissed on this, it would be so sad, because I knew it was so important. I've set up the demonstration in his conference room and showed it to Jobs privately, knowing that he was less likely to make a snap judgment if there was no audience. Fortunately, he loved it. This is the future, he exulted. It was, in fact, such a good idea that Jobs realized that it could solve the problem they were having creating an interface for the proposed cell phone. That project was far more important, so he put the tablet development on hold while the multi-touch interface was adopted for a phone-sized screen. If it worked on a phone, he recalled, I knew we could go back and use it on a tablet. Jobs called Fidel, Rubenstein, and Schiller to a secret meeting in the design studio conference room where Ive gave a demonstration of multi-touch. Wow, said Fidel. Everyone liked it, but they were not sure that they would be able to make it work on a mobile phone. They decided to proceed on two paths. P1 was the code name for the phone being developed using an iPod track wheel, and P2 was the new alternative using a multi-touch screen. A small company in Delaware called Fingerworks was already making a line of multi-touch trackpads. Founded by two academics at the University of Delaware, John Elias and Wayne Westerman, Fingerworks had developed some tablets with multi-touch sensing capabilities and taken out patents on ways to translate various finger gestures, such as pinches and swipes, into useful functions. In early 2005, Apple quietly acquired the company, all of its patents, and the services of its two founders. Fingerworks quit selling its products to others, and it began filing its new patents in Apple's name. After six months of work on the TrackWheel P1 and the Multitouch P2 phone options, Jobs called his inner circle into his conference room to make a decision. Fidel had been trying hard to develop the track wheel model, but he admitted they had not cracked the problem of figuring out a simple way to dial calls. The multi-touch approach was riskier because they were unsure whether they could execute the engineering, but it was also more exciting and promising. We all know this is the one we want to do, said Jobs, pointing to the touchscreen. So let's make it work. It was what he liked to call a bet-the-company moment, high risk and high reward if it succeeded.
A couple of members of the team argued for having a keyboard as well, given the popularity of the BlackBerry, but Jobs vetoed the idea. A physical keyboard would take away space from the screen, and it would not be as flexible and adaptable as a touchscreen keyboard. A hardware keyboard seems like an easy solution, but it's constraining, he said. Think of all the innovations we'd be able to adapt if we did the keyboard on screen with software. Let's bet on it, and then we'll find a way to make it work. The result was a device that displays a numerical pad when you want to dial a phone number, a typewriter keyboard when you want to write, and whatever buttons you might need for each particular activity. And then they all disappear when you're watching a video. By having software replace hardware, the interface became fluid and flexible. Jobs spent part of every day for six months helping to refine the display. It was the most complex fun I've ever had, he recalled. It was like being the one evolving the variations on Sgt. Pepper. A lot of features that seem simple now were the result of creative brainstorms. For example, the team worried about how to prevent the device from playing music or making a call accidentally when it was jangling in your pocket. Jobs was congenitally averse to having on-off switches, which he deemed inelegant. The solution was Swipe to Open, the simple and fun on-screen slider that activated the device when it had gone dormant. Another breakthrough was the sensor that figured out when you put the phone to your ear so that your lobes didn't accidentally activate some function. And, of course, the icons came in his favorite shape, the primitive one he made Bill Atkinson design into the software of the first Macintosh, rounded rectangles. In session after session, with jobs immersed in every detail, the team members figured out ways to simplify what other phones made complicated. They added a big bar to guide you in putting calls on hold or making conference calls, found easy ways to navigate through email, and created icons you could scroll through horizontally to get to different apps, all of which were easier because they could be used visually on the screen rather than by using a keyboard built into the hardware. Gorilla Glass Jobs became infatuated with different materials the way he did with certain foods. When he went back to Apple in 1997 and started work on the iMac, he had embraced what could be done with translucent and colored plastic. The next phase was metal. He and I've replaced the curvy plastic PowerBook G3 with the sleek titanium PowerBook G4, which they redesigned two years later in aluminum, as if just to demonstrate how much they liked different metals. Then they did an iMac and an iPod Nano in anodized aluminum, which meant that the metal had been put in an acid bath and electrified so that its surface oxidized. Jobs was told it could not be done in the quantities they needed, so he had a factory built in China to handle it. I've went there, during the SARS epidemic, to oversee the process. I stayed for three months in a dormitory to work on the process, he recalled. Ruby and others said it would be impossible, but I wanted to do it because Steve and I felt that the anodized aluminum had a real integrity to it.
Next was glass. After we did metal, I looked at Johnny and said that we had to master glass, said Jobs. For the Apple stores, they had created huge window panes and glass stairs. For the iPhone, the original plan was for it to have a plastic screen like the iPod. But Jobs decided it would feel much more elegant and substantive if the screens were glass. So he set about finding a glass that would be strong and resistant to scratches. The natural place to look was Asia, where the glass for the stores was being made. But Jobs's friend, John Seely Brown, who was on the board of Corning Glass in upstate New York, told him that he should talk to that company's young and dynamic CEO, Wendell Weeks. So he dialed the main Corning switchboard number and asked to be put through to Weeks. He got an assistant, who offered to pass along the message. No, I'm Steve Jobs, he replied. Put me through. The assistant refused. Jobs called Brown and complained that he had been subjected to typical East Coast bullshit. When Weeks heard that, he called the main Apple switchboard and asked to speak to Jobs. Weeks was told to put his request in writing and send it in by fax. When Jobs was told what happened, he took a liking to Weeks and invited him to Cupertino. Jobs described the type of glass Apple wanted for the iPhone, and Weeks told him that Corning had developed a chemical exchange process in the 1960s that led to what they dubbed Gorilla Glass. It was incredibly strong, but it had never found a market, so Corning quit making it. Jobs said he doubted it was good enough, and he started explaining to Weeks how glass was made. This amused Weeks, who of course knew more than Jobs about that topic. Can you shut up, Weeks interjected, and let me teach you some science? Jobs was taken aback and fell silent. Weeks went to the whiteboard and gave a tutorial on the chemistry, which involved an ion exchange process that produced a compression layer on the surface of the glass. This turned Jobs around, and he said he wanted as much gorilla glass as Corning could make within six months. We don't have the capacity, Weeks replied. None of our plants make the glass now. Don't be afraid, Jobs replied. This stunned Weeks, who was good-humored and confident, but not used to Jobs's reality distortion field. He tried to explain that a false sense of confidence would not overcome engineering challenges, but that was a premise that Jobs had repeatedly shown he didn't accept. He stared at Weeks, unblinking. Yes, you can do it, he said. Get your mind around it. You can do it. As Weeks retold this story, he shook his head in astonishment. We did it in under six months, he said. We produced a glass that had never been made. Corning's facility in Harrisburg, Kentucky, which had been making LCD displays, was converted almost overnight to make Gorilla Glass full-time. We put our best scientists and engineers on it, and we just made it work. In his airy office, Weeks has just one framed memento on display. It's a message Jobs sent the day the iPhone came out. We couldn't have done it without you.
the design. On many of his major projects, such as the first Toy Story in the Apple Store, Jobs pressed pause as they neared completion and decided to make major revisions. That happened with the design of the iPhone as well. The initial design had the glass screen set into an aluminum case. One Monday morning, Jobs went over to see Ive. I didn't sleep last night, he said, because I realized that I just don't love it. It was the most important product he had made since the first Macintosh, and it just didn't look right to him. Ive, to his dismay, instantly realized that Jobs was right. I remember feeling absolutely embarrassed that he had to make the observation. The problem was that the iPhone should have been all about the display, but in their current design, the case competed with the display instead of getting out of the way. The whole device felt too masculine, task-driven, efficient. Guys, you've killed yourselves over this design for the last nine months, but we're going to change it, Jobs told Ives' team. We're all going to have to work nights and weekends, and if you want, we can hand out some guns so you can kill us now. Instead of balking, the team agreed. It was one of my proudest moments at Apple, Jobs recalled. The new design ended up with just a thin stainless steel bezel that allowed the Gorilla Glass display to go right to the edge. Every part of the device seemed to defer to the screen. The new look was austere, yet also friendly. You could fondle it. It meant they had to redo the circuit boards, antenna, and processor placement inside, but Jobs ordered the change. Other companies may have shipped, said Fidel, but we pressed the reset button and started over. One aspect of the design which reflected not only Jobs's perfectionism, but also his desire to control, was that the device was tightly sealed. The case could not be opened, even to change the battery. As with the original Macintosh in 1984, Jobs did not want people fiddling inside. In fact, when Apple discovered in 2011 that third-party repair shops were opening up the iPhone 4, it replaced the tiny screws with a tamper-resistant pentalobe screw that was impossible to open with a commercially available screwdriver. By not having a replaceable battery, it was possible to make the iPhone much thinner. For Jobs, thinner was always better. He's always believed that thin is beautiful, said Tim Cook. You can see that in all of the work. We have the thinnest notebook, the thinnest smartphone, and we made the iPad thin and then even thinner. The Launch when it came time to launch the iPhone, Jobs decided, as usual, to grant a magazine a special sneak preview. He called John Huey, the editor-in-chief of Time, Inc., and began with his typical superlative, This is the best thing we've ever done. He wanted to give Time the exclusive, but there's nobody smart enough at Time to write it, so I'm going to give it to someone else. Huey introduced him to Lev Grossman, a savvy technology writer and novelist at time. 
In his piece, Grossman correctly noted that the iPhone did not really invent many new features. It just made these features a lot more usable. But that's important. When our tools don't work, we tend to blame ourselves for being too stupid or not reading the manual or having too fat fingers. When our tools are broken, we feel broken. And when somebody fixes one, we feel a tiny bit more whole. For the unveiling at the January 2007 Macworld in San Francisco, Jobs invited back Andy Hertzfeld, Bill Atkinson, Steve Wozniak, and the 1984 Macintosh team, as he had done when he launched the iMac. In a career of dazzling product presentations, this may have been his best. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything, he began. He referred to two earlier examples, the original Macintosh, which changed the whole computer industry, and the first iPod, which changed the entire music industry. Then he carefully built up to the product he was about to launch. Today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough Internet communications device. He repeated the list for emphasis, then asked, Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device, and we are calling it iPhone. When the iPhone went on sale five months later at the end of June 2007, Jobs and his wife walked to the Apple store in Palo Alto to take in the excitement. Since he often did that on the day new products went on sale, there were some fans hanging out in anticipation, and they greeted him as they would have Moses if he had walked in to buy the Bible. Among the faithful were Hertzfeld and Atkinson. Bill stayed in line all night, Hertzfeld said. Jobs waved his arms and started laughing. I send him one, he said. Hertzfeld replied, he needs six. The iPhone was immediately dubbed the Jesus phone by bloggers. But Apple's competitors emphasized that at $500, it cost too much to be successful. It's the most expensive phone in the world, Microsoft Steve Ballmer said in a CNBC interview and it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard. Once again, Microsoft had underestimated Jobs' product. By the end of 2010, Apple had sold 90 million iPhones, and it reaped more than half of the total profits generated in the global cell phone market. Steve understands desire said Alan Kay, the Xerox Park pioneer who had envisioned a Dynabook tablet computer 40 years earlier. Kay was good at making prophetic assessments, so Jobs asked him what he thought of the iPhone. Make the screen 5 inches by 8 inches, and you'll rule the world, Kay said. He did not know that the design of the iPhone had started with and would someday lead to ideas for a tablet computer that would fulfill, indeed exceed, his vision for the Dynabook.
Chapter 37 Round 2 The Cancer Recurs The Battles of 2008 By the beginning of 2008, it was clear to Jobs and his doctors that his cancer was spreading. When they had taken out his pancreatic tumors in 2004, he had the cancer genome partially sequenced. That helped his doctors determine which pathways were broken, and they were treating him with targeted therapies that they thought were most likely to work. He was also being treated for pain, usually with morphine-based analgesics. One day in February 2008, when Powell's close friend Catherine Smith was staying with them in Palo Alto, she and Jobs took a walk. He told me that when he feels really bad, he just concentrates on the pain, goes into the pain, and that seems to dissipate it, she recalled. That wasn't exactly true, however. When Jobs was in pain, he was expressive in letting everyone around him know it. There was another health issue that became increasingly problematic, one that medical researchers didn't focus on as rigorously as they did cancer or pain. He was having eating problems and losing weight. Partly this was because he had lost much of his pancreas, which produces the enzymes needed to digest protein and other nutrients. It was also because the morphine reduced his appetite. And then there was the psychological component, which the doctors barely knew how to address. Since his early teens, he had indulged his weird obsession with extremely restrictive diets and fasts. Even after he married and had children, he retained his dubious eating habits. He would spend weeks eating the same thing, carrot salad with lemon or just apples, and suddenly spurn that food and declare that he had stopped eating it. He would go on fasts, just as he did as a teenager, and he became sanctimonious as he lectured others at the table on the virtues of whatever eating regimen he was following. Powell had been a vegan when they were first married, but after her husband's operation, she began to diversify their family meals with fish and other proteins. Their son, Reed, who had been a vegetarian, became a hearty omnivore. They knew it was important for his father to get diverse sources of protein. The family hired a gentle and versatile cook, Briar Brown, who once worked for Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. He came each afternoon and made a panoply of healthy offerings for dinner, which used the herbs and vegetables that Powell grew in their garden. When Jobs expressed any whim, carrot salad, pasta with basil, lemongrass soup, Brown would quietly and patiently find a way to make it. Jobs had always been an extremely opinionated eater, with a tendency to instantly judge any food as either fantastic or terrible. He could taste two avocados that most mortals would find indistinguishable and declare that one was the best avocado ever grown and the other inedible. Beginning in early 2008, Jobs's eating disorders got worse. On some nights, he would stare at the floor and ignore all of the dishes set out on the long kitchen table. When others were halfway through their meal, he would abruptly get up and leave, 
saying nothing. It was stressful for his family. They watched him lose 40 pounds during the spring of 2008. His health problems became public again in March 2008 when Fortune published a piece called The Trouble with Steve Jobs. It revealed that he had tried to treat his cancer with diets for nine months and also investigated his involvement in the backdating of Apple stock options. As the story was being prepared, Jobs invited, summoned, Fortune's managing editor, Andy Serwer, to Cupertino to pressure him to spike it. He leaned into Serwer's face and asked, So, you've uncovered the fact that I'm an asshole. Why is that news? Jobs made the same rather self-aware argument when he called Serwer's boss at Time, Inc., John Huey, from a satellite phone he brought to Hawaii's Kona Village. He offered to convene a panel of fellow CEOs and be part of a discussion about what health issues are proper to disclose, but only if fortune killed its peace. The magazine didn't. When Jobs introduced the iPhone 3G in June 2008, he was so thin that it overshadowed the product announcement. In Esquire, Tom Junod described the withered figure on stage as being gaunt as a pirate, dressed in what had heretofore been the vestments of his invulnerability. Apple released a statement saying, untruthfully, that his weight loss was the result of a common bug. The following month, as questions persisted, the company released another statement saying that Jobs' health was a private matter. Joe Nacera of the New York Times wrote a column denouncing the handling of Jobs' health issues. Apple simply can't be trusted to tell the truth about its chief executive, he wrote in late July. Under Mr. Jobs, Apple has created a culture of secrecy that has served it well in many ways. The speculation over which products Apple will unveil at the annual Mac World Conference has been one of the company's best marketing tools, but that same culture poisons its corporate governance. As he was writing the column and getting the standard A Private Matter comment from all at Apple, he got an unexpected call from Jobs himself. This is Steve Jobs, he began. You think I'm an arrogant asshole who thinks he's above the law, and I think you're a slime bucket who gets most of his facts wrong. After that rather arresting opening, Jobs offered up some information about his health, but only if Nasera would keep it off the record. Nasera honored the request, but he was able to report that while Jobs' health problems amounted to more than a common bug, they weren't life-threatening and he doesn't have a recurrence of cancer. Jobs had given Nocera more information than he was willing to give his own board and shareholders, but it was not the full truth. Partly due to concern about Jobs' weight loss, Apple's stock price drifted from $188 at the beginning of June 2008 down to $156 at the end of July. Matters were not helped in late August, when Bloomberg News mistakenly released its prepackaged obituary of Jobs, which ended up on Gawker. 
Jobs was able to roll out Mark Twain's famous quip a few days later at his annual music event. Reports of my death are greatly exaggerated, he said, as he launched a line of new iPods. But his gaunt appearance was not reassuring. By early October, the stock price had sunk to $97. That month, Doug Morris of Universal Music was scheduled to meet with Jobs at Apple. Instead, Jobs invited him to his house. Morris was surprised to see him so ill and in pain. Morris was about to be honored at a gala in Los Angeles for City of Hope, which raised money to fight cancer, and he wanted Jobs to be there. Charitable events were something Jobs avoided, but he decided to do it both for Morris and for the cause. At the event, held in a big tent on Santa Monica Beach, Morris told the 2,000 guests that Jobs was giving the music industry a new lease on life. The performances by Stevie Nicks, Lionel Richie, Erica Badu, and Akon went on past midnight and Jobs had severe chills. Jimmy Iovine gave him a hooded sweatshirt to wear, and he kept the hood over his head all evening. He was so sick, so cold, so thin, Morris recalled. Fortune's veteran technology writer, Brent Schlender, was leaving the magazine that December, and his swan song was to be a joint interview with Jobs, Bill Gates, Andy Grove, and Michael Dell. It had been hard to organize, and just a few days before it was to happen, Jobs called to back out. If they ask why, just tell them I'm an asshole, he said. Gates was annoyed, then discovered what the health situation was. Of course, he had a very, very good reason, said Gates. He just didn't want to say. That became more apparent when Apple announced on December 16th that Jobs was canceling his scheduled appearance at the January Macworld, the forum he had used for big product launches for the past 11 years. The blogosphere erupted with speculation about his health, much of which had the odious smell of truth. Jobs was furious and felt violated. He was also annoyed that Apple wasn't being more active in pushing back. So on January 5, 2009, he wrote and released a misleading open letter. He claimed that he was skipping Macworld because he wanted to spend more time with his family. As many of you know, I have been losing weight throughout 2008, he added. My doctors think they have found the cause, a hormone imbalance that has been robbing me of the proteins my body needs to be healthy. Sophisticated blood tests have confirmed this diagnosis. The remedy for this nutritional problem is relatively simple. There was a kernel of truth to this, albeit a small one. One of the hormones created by the pancreas is glucagon, which is the flip side of insulin. Glucagon causes your liver to release blood sugar. Jobs' tumor had metastasized into his liver and was wreaking havoc. In effect, his body was devouring itself, so his doctors gave him drugs to try to lower the glucagon level. He did have a hormone imbalance, but it was because his cancer had spread into his liver. He was in personal denial about this, and he also wanted to be in public denial. 
Unfortunately, that was legally problematic because he ran a publicly traded company. But Jobs was furious about the way the blogosphere was treating him, and he wanted to strike back. He was very sick at this point, despite his upbeat statement, and also in excruciating pain. He had undertaken another round of cancer drug therapy, and it had grueling side effects. His skin started drying out and cracking. In his quest for alternative approaches, he flew to Basel, Switzerland, to try an experimental hormone-delivered radiotherapy. He also underwent an experimental treatment developed in Rotterdam known as peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. After a week filled with increasingly insistent legal advice, Jobs finally agreed to go on medical leave. He made the announcement on January 14, 2009, in another open letter to the Apple staff. At first he blamed the decision on the prying of bloggers and the press. Unfortunately, the curiosity over my personal health continues to be a distraction not only for me and my family, but everyone else at Apple, he said. But then he admitted that the remedy for his hormone imbalance was not as simple as he had claimed. During the past week, I have learned that my health-related issues are more complex than I originally thought. Tim Cook would again take over daily operations, but Jobs said that he would remain CEO, continue to be involved in major decisions, and be back by June. Jobs had been consulting with Bill Campbell and Art Levinson, who were juggling the dual roles of being his personal health advisors and also the co-lead directors of the company. But the rest of the board had not been as fully informed, and the shareholders had initially been misinformed. That raised some legal issues, and the SEC opened an investigation into whether the company had withheld material information from shareholders. It would constitute security fraud, a felony, if the company had allowed the dissemination of false information or withheld true information that was relevant to the company's financial prospects. Because Jobs and his magic were so closely identified with Apple's comeback, his health seemed to meet this standard. But it was a murky area of the law. The privacy rights of the CEO had to be weighed. This balance was particularly difficult in the case of Jobs, who both valued his privacy and embodied his company more than most CEOs. He did not make the task easier. He became very emotional, both ranting and crying at times when railing against anyone who suggested that he should be less secretive. Campbell treasured his friendship with Jobs and he didn't want to have any fiduciary duty to violate his privacy 